0: I want to welcome everyone to Narrative Medicine Rounds. My name is Deepu Gauda. I'm a general internist right here at Columbia. I trained here. Um, Narrative Medicine has been a part of my entire medical training. I started working with Rita Sharon when I was an intern, um, and it it's truly impacted the way I think about medicine, medical practice, medical education. The work of Narrative Medicine has really impacted our medical school as well. Uh, If you look throughout our four-year curriculum, there are opportunities for reflective writing, opportunities to engage with texts. So the fact that we are meeting here in a room that used to be a library. This floor didn't used to exist back in the day. I wasn't around then. But this floor didn't exist. This was all just open from the first floor, and this was all stacks here. So this is a place of texts. Um, This is also a place of medicine. This building, Presbyterian Hospital, was the old medical building. So there were... Uh, medicine floors uh, throughout this entire building where there was uh, patient care being delivered. So it's apt that we're meeting in this space where the world of the creative world of literature and art uh, meets the, the, the clinical world. I would like to invite you to, to uh, look at your calendars and invite you to come back the next couple months. Uh, we have two more narrative medicine rounds uh, this semester. May 4th, George Yancey, who's a professor of philosophy of Emory, um, will be with us. He's going to be talking about race um, and ethnicity in the United States. He's written widely about that, a very influential writer and thinker, um, so we hope you will join us uh, for that. And in June, Elizabeth Rosenthal, a reporter for the New York Times and author of the series "Playing Till It Hurts and When the Hospital Fires the Bullet, really provocative pieces, I don't know if you have had a chance to look at that, but really amazing pieces. We'll be here to talk about her, her work and her uh, perception of the United States healthcare system. So uh, Edgar Colon Rivera, Dr. Edgar Colon Rivera will be introducing our speaker tonight. Edgar is a uh, teacher professor within the Narrative Medicine Program. He works with the master students. He works with our medical students as well. His classes are Very highly rated, um, and that's because he truly loves what he's doing, and his heart is in it, his intelligence is in it, his politics is in the work that he does. He teaches our students qualitative research methods. His own uh, work within medical anthropology has focused on working with communities of color, working with gay and lesbian and transsexual uh, communities, and also working with communities that have been affected by HIV and AIDS. Um, and thinking about how these qualitative research methods can actually engage with communities to make, make change. And Edgar, I think, has really taught us, taught the students, taught the community of narrative medicine to think about qualitative research from a very critical eye, considering how race and class and power really affects the way we conduct research and affects what is actually learned and seen in the community. And the other beautiful thing that he does is he reminds us that as researchers, the primary instrument of research is one's own body, one's own senses, and one's own self. Edgar.
1: In the interest of transparency, I have to say that Deepu uh, was my student, and he did very well in my course, but I'm going to reduce his grade because my name is Edgar Rivera Colón. <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> Bavarian, Colón and Puerto Rico are like Smith Jones, right? So don't worry about it. You can give me some easy. So um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight to introduce uh, Helena, uh, to introduce her work, and I just want to make a few comments. and. And first, I'll do the bio, like the, the technical bio part, so we get that all settled out. And I'm doing this on an iPhone, so bear with me. Um, and I'm gonna, of course, Latinize your name, right? So, uh, Dr. Helena Hansen uh, is an assistant professor of anthropology and psychiatry at NYU. Her work on addiction, HIV, faith healing, recovery movements, ethnic marketing, and pharmaceuticals, and biosocial processes in the US, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. Have been published in journals ranging from the medical, from medical anthropology and this, and social science, and medicine to JAMA and Health Affairs. Her current projects are supported by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the Mellon Foundation, and the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Investigator Award. So obviously, prestigious, uh, very great work, and I'm so glad you went to Puerto Rico and Cuba. <laughs> Helena Hansen earned her uh, MD and PhD in cultural anthropology as part of the Yale University's NIH-funded medical scientist training program. And those programs were advocated for. I mean, it's important to remember that those programs wouldn't exist while people advocating within NIH and outside of it to get trainers who are culturally and structurally competent. We'll get that structural comp- comp- competence in a moment. Uh, she is joint appointed assistant uh, professor of anthropology and psychiatry at NYU and research psychiatrist at the New York State Office of Mental Health, uh, Nathan Fine Institute. During graduate school, she completed fieldwork in uh, La Havana on Cuban AIDS policy, in urban Connecticut on harm reduction and needle exchange, and in Puerto Rico on faith healing and evangelical Christian addiction ministries, founded and run by self-identified ex-addicts. Her work has been published in both clinical and social science journals, ranging from the Journal of American Medical Association and Health Affairs to Culture, Medicine and Psychiatry, and Biosocieties. After graduate school, she completed a clinical residency in psychiatry at NYU, Medical Center, Bellevue Hospital, during which she undertook an ethnographic study of the introduction of new addiction pharmaceuticals. She examined the social and political implications of clinician, clinician, clinicians' effort to establish addiction as a biomedical, uh, biomedical uh, rather than than the moral or social condition. As well as the ways that neurochemical treatment may be reinscribing hierarchies of ethnicity and race. She is also leading a national movement of training of clinical practitioners to address social determinants of health, which she and co leader RWJ clinical scholar Jonathan Metzel call structural competency. She's the recipient of the Laura Johnson Health Policy Investigator Award, Kaiser Permanente uh, Birch Minority Leadership Award, a K uh, K1 Award a Mellon Sawyer Seminar Grant, and the American Association of Directors of Psychiatry Residency Training Model Curriculum Award. So, obviously, she fits all the, uh, all the status. It's great to have you here. And I just want to make a, a comment that I actually got to know Helena's work through uh, Sayatani Dasgupta, who teaches here, and Lynn Graber and Elizabeth Campesi up in Albany. And we actually did a series of webinars around this question of structural competency. And really, the issue there is, is cultural competency enough, given the structural drivers of illness in this country and throughout the world? And this has been an important intervention. I mean, it's really a groundbreaking moment, and we're really upscaling that. Now, I just want to say a couple of things, and then I'll be out of here. The first thing I want to say is that recently, the Huffington Post uh, had an article in which uh, there's a conversation with John Ehrlichman. And Ehrlichman is talking about the Nixon strategy of 1968. And this is a quote. You want to know what this was really about? He asked with the bluntness of a man who, after public disgrace and a a stretch in federal prison, had little left to protect. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We know we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So to me, as somebody who came out of the black nationalist movement, because I was a Puerto Rican nationalist here, um, a lot of the questions of drugs, both in my family, having had two of my cousins die of HIV because they were shooting up and had been Vietnam veterans, and then their wives died, and then our family having to take care of those kids, right, was for me, growing up in those movements, I learned from the get-go that this was a form of low-intensity warfare right, that invaded bodies right, and criminalized communities. And luckily, now I think we're beginning to come to an awareness about treating whole cities and not just people. I'm glad Mindy Fullerlove is here, who talks about these sorted-out cities. And as I think about my own downtown Jersey City, how we've been displaced, the Puerto Rican community, the black community, and white ethnic communities, it's, it's hard for me not to see this as a continuation of displacement, class and race war. And I, I think there's a fine tradition in ethnography of documentaries with a perspective really to challenge this question of structural violence and inequality. So it's an honor to have Edna here. Um, we're going to have a great night tonight, a great discussion, and I'm just glad that this is being continued, this tradition of critical documentaries and having people who are both psychiatrists and anthropologists doing this work. Welcome, Yay, sister. sister and comrade. <laughs> wow, what a beautiful
2: introduction and uh, it's it's just such an honor to be here because I've long admired the work of the narrative medicine group here um, and I can't resist acknowledging just some of the people who are here that made all of this possible so from the perspective of my standing in front of you immediately Morris um, Beagle I'm not sure if she's in the audience she is oh thank you so much for thinking of me <laughs> And Amber Weiss, who I introduced me to Mara, along with Mindy Fullylove, who is someone I consider my mentor in life, and I know she's here, but I don't see who there she is. Um, I also want to acknowledge Tim Cahill, who's right in front. He's the editor, kind of mastermind, and I'll give you a little more detail in a moment about the video. Um, Stories and Recovery Group that was instrumental in making this project possible. Uh, It turns out that Tim is both a psychotherapist and a film editor who was working in the clinic at at a time when I was doing heavy work on this, so I'm really lucky to have him and his perspective. Um, And then also in the front row, I want to acknowledge Lena Friedman and Cisco Villar, co-founders of the Video Stories and Recovery Group that I'm going to describe. Um, as well as Steve Nellen um, and Susan Schlegel um, and Ruben Lopez, who you're going to meet on film as well, Um, Beverly Hawkins, Frank Montijo, and also uh, Hippie Lou Webster um, and Frankie, did I mention Frankie Martinez? Yes, okay. So I know I'm I'm leaving some people out of this, but I just want to give you a sense of the people who are in the room with us, and I hope that they pitch in during the question and answer period. So it was really um, thought-provoking for me to be invited to speak as part of a narrative medicine series, because I, I humbly hadn't thought of myself as a part of that proud lineage, an official part of that proud lineage, but I realized that Actually, the project that I'm gonna share with you, which is a a work in progress, is um, in my mind, a piece of narrative medicine on two levels. One is narrative as a way of practicing medicine. So the documentary that I'm working on was inspired by and co-produced by, at many points, members of the Video Stories and Recovery Group at Bellevue Hospital. And this is a group that was founded over 10 years ago by creative arts therapist Lena Friedman and Cisco Velar, who uh, was a former client a volunteer there with a filming, filmmaking background. For me, working there um, as a resident and later as a research attending, it was an oasis of mutual learning, creative thinking, and group process. I stumbled across it in my first year of residency, in fact, when one of my supervisors learned about my interests, that I was an anthropologist, that I was really interested in social technologies of treatment. He took me by the hand and introduced me to Anatina Miescher, who at that time was the director of the clinic that houses the video group. Um, She herself is a psychiatrist and a visual artist. And she crafted this fantastic, vibrant holistic addiction program in the corner of a cracked and peeling building of Bellevue Hospital uh, that still has a sobriety garden, a cooking group, a music group, and several visual arts therapy groups. So the video group that I fell into working with has scripted, filmed, and edited multiple video projects, and I can't take credit for the vast majority of them. I've been involved with some of them. Uh, many of them are personal recovery stories of group members. Others are comedies, dramas, so they are a wide range of genres. And it's a democratic group in which all members, staff, and clients alike share in decision-making and the labor of, of video production. So for this project, except for the editing, which Tim Cahill did primarily, um, and he certainly is a professional, Uh, What you're gonna see is not a professional production in the sense of many of us took turns holding the camera and I learned to use a camera in the process of doing this project, but it reflects a a way of building community, a community of support and recovery that has deeply affected me as a doctor and changed what I see as possible in treatment. So uh, it's a real honor to share what we have of this with you. Um, And it might seem raw as a result, some of the footage may seem raw, Um, But I have some questions for you at the end because I see this as an opportunity to learn from you How I can better use this material and how the group can uh, support me in that now the second level of narrative That I think of when I think of this project narrative medicine is a way to care for oneself as a practitioner and I'm now realizing that what drew me to this particular project was that I was questioning my own role in the wholesale pharmaceuticalization of psychiatry and in addiction treatment. Um, and Edward Colon, Rivera, Colon uh, just mentioned the troubled racial history, connection to the war on drugs, that the addiction pharmaceuticals that um, play a key role as an agent in the stories that you're going to see has. So, certainly, this pharmaceuticalization and its connection to the war on drugs is something that's been documented, analyzed, and critiqued by many medical anthropologists and sociologists, but I didn't have the luxury of critiquing from the outside. I was prescribing the very treatments that they were writing about. Um, And so, and also very conscious of What um, many writers pointed out might have been part of a neoliberal plot on the part of big pharma and the shrinking welfare state to basically thin uh, and reduce um, addiction treatment to one's relationship with a medication. It was only by tracking patients' stories that I could understand the complex moral and and clinical valences of these treatments. Because I really feel, having been on the inside, that it's it's not a black or white issue. There's so much gray area. And the ways that these medications combine with or conflict with the social technologies that people use, people in recovery use to survive, um, is very much context-dependent. So the project that I'm gonna share with you today has been beneficial to me for working through some of these dilemmas of working in that gray zone. And it's not finished. Um, I'm looking forward to your feedback, because I know that we're going to benefit from it but I'll start with a brief background on the footage that you're going to see and the people in it and then screen vignettes of three people who I met at the clinic and who allowed me to follow them and other other group members with a camera so a little bit about the context you saw in the title of the talk something about race class and addiction pharmaceuticals um, so I I chose psychiatry because I was fascinated by social technologies for approaching stigmatized problems like addiction. And uh, what I found was that I started in my psychiatric training in this moment that it was moving very swiftly towards biology. So this was just after President pushed the first decade of the brain. And the field of addiction treatment acknowledged that um, addiction was very tough nut to crack, that relapse was common, and it stopped promising a cure for addiction. Instead, it rebranded addiction as a chronic brain disease that requires long-term pharmaceuticals. And the prototype for this actually was invented a few decades before, methadone. Uh, And you heard a little bit um, from Edward about how um, it was President Nixon's first weapon in the war on drugs. it was symbolically linked as a result to poor black and brown neighborhoods in the inner cities and tightly surveyed by the DEA. So it wasn't fully within medical practice actually, And to this day, methadone clinics are located slightly outside of the medical complexes, often in the back area, um, if not in an entirely different neighborhood, but in perhaps in a, in a trailer. You know, in the Bronx, I know of many methadone clinics that are located in trailers. So that conveys a lot. And then when the suburban painkiller epidemic got started in the late 90s, which is something that I've been tracking in my other research, Congress recognized that something that wasn't methadone was needed because uh, this methadone system wasn't designed for that new population of suburban whites. Um, And also the manufacturer of an alternate opioid called buprenorphine, otherwise known commercially as Suboxone, which can be prescribed in a private doctor's office, saw a market opportunity. So actually, these things were all related. Um, the manufacturer of Suboxone was deeply involved in the legislative changes at the federal level that made office-based treatment with buprenorphine possible, at least for those who could afford it. So um, it's in this hyper-pharmaceuticalized and racially stratified system of treatment that I met Camille, Ruben, and Ed featured in, in the footage, they let me film them in the process of getting on and staying on opioid maintenance treatment. And I mentioned that this, this I found to be a gray zone, that it's not always easy to tell whether um, I as a prescriber, other prescribers are doing more harm than good in this treatment. Um, I saw in the course of following them People are trying to use pharmaceuticals to survive. That survival is not a simple story of a pharmaceutical fix, of course. Their social lives are inseparable from their medications and shaping when and how medications open or close possibilities for them. So as they went on and off medications, and I'm talking about Camille, Ruben, and Ed, they learned pharmaceutical ways of life. And I found out what's at stake in taking opioids for opiate addiction. So now I'm going to turn to the footage. the first person uh, that you're going to see is Camille. She's an African-American Army veteran and adoptive grandmother who's highly motivated given who she is and how many people she's responsible for to get medication um, treatment for heroin addiction, but she doesn't like the punitive ethos of methadone clinics. She tries to get onto buprenorphine. She learns about it actually through the clinic where I work, that her insurance won't cover her, her treatment there, In fact, it requires her to go for inpatient uh, rehabilitation in order to get on buprenorphine. This is clearly designed to discourage her from getting onto what is an expensive treatment from their point of view, a short-sighted point of view. So they require her to go for rehab 30 miles north of her home, tearing her away from her family, even though most privately insured people can start buprenorphine in a doctor's office. That's the whole idea behind it. So uh, let me show about... 15 minutes of Camille. I think it's, maybe it's 10 minutes at this point, right? And should we hit the lights? Does anyone know how to do that?
3: (laughs) She was very depressed, and she had been depressed for years, but it just seemed to be escalating. Yeah. Yeah, she so. <laughs> used to come right in my face and stuff, and all that. You know, she used to make me eat and everything. This was like a big old family. <laughs> yeah. Jamie, look at her. She got cancer. Oh my God, cancer! She's- I would like to sit back into do depression and all like, that. Sometimes I don't sit back then, I do. Sometimes I'm not. See the right That's <laughs> what I'm to Like, go and live my life again. Like, go and like, see why I'm here on earth. There's obviously a reason for everyone, and because all my friends died, I began to wonder why I'm still here and they're not. Because we we're going to get anything to go to church and live by it, regardless of what you live by. And I, I connect yourself with substances and, you know, things that tear on your body. Because the
4: caught
3: is like, I had to feel like I see some people I used to get so mad that this person is miserable and they're still alive. And I said, my mother and my brothers were going there, but they didn't do nothing. I guess we brought it
2: in. We're We're working on the sound. Can but you hear it? All
3: mm-hmm. oh, songs start off the fact. You know that? All songs start off the fact. Corey is not side. He now has his own family. And the girl is Corey's Corey's mother, she died of an overdose. And the father died of AIDS and overdose. So the brother died. She wanted to be a little because she got out She wound up becoming his mother. We saw one mother, and older brother. Before she died, she asked us if something happened to we take care of Corey. We took him in because he really had nowhere else to go. He, he asked. He yeah. So, yeah. I started working for us so much. Because he's so cute. But I adopted, you know, can't get it. Uh, you call me, mom? Program, mm-hmm. Which I finally refused to go to because so of my friends were doing it. It sort seems of like it gets to the bones and stuff, uh, and they start working and I, uh, I, keep, I, I, keep, I have a sweet problem with my teeth. I don't have a calcium problem with teeth,
4: too, because it seems sort of like the left such calcium you know, in the bones and i
3: saw two people get up there. Mm-hmm. And everybody has a the program. Mm-hmm you so How long is that? by I hold you. The people that I feel. But you can do it as well as I have left like, like okay? So what does um, the child feel like? No, 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 You start feeling like you got feeling like over your body. You start feeling like your are you we start sweating mostly, so mostly of the world, I don't want to um, go back out there. Um, and I don't know why. i might not going to give that, I would go out there. And the point this: um, we met in Japan, we got married twice, Japanese and American, by the American culture and Japanese way. And I went to my husband was totally ill. To take care of him in the middle of town, which I had to I to with what I do The girl in the The the
4: red,
3: and I'm 53. For <laughs> almost 30 oh. right. Curiosity. I had no up with a two 17, and about i in the where I stopped when I went to service. I had so much to time, again. This is why everybody was through my family. But I uh, Relax. I will married. I never the I I back to my old ways. Did you miss a little
4: bit? Yes. 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 Yes.
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, and okay. that's We can't do Next, so I need time you know so I wouldn't relax and all that. I think I had like enough to that Monday and everything. And since I had no award and I went there and I couldn't get it then I got me something that would make me feel better. And I wouldn't didn't do it every day. I didn't get something every day. I just got it when I got really uncomfortable. So I think I got something like twice in two weeks or three times Two weeks, I did something. But was, that would last me, I guess, like two two weeks on a third day where I don't feel real uncomfortable. As like I try to hold, it. sometimes you feel worse. And it's not always exactly. Sometimes I didn't feel as bad as I did. And I figure I can, as long as I go to sleep, which I still had the other pills that will help me sleep, I can handle it. Hello, my name is Camilla Johnson, and I spoke to someone yesterday about um, the assessment for intake. Is there any particular paperwork I need to have? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. I'm No, anything I might have prescribed in my insurance card. I don't care what it's going to take. I just want it done. I just want it. This process. Yeah. And so here we are. Even now, I think I need more sense of time to get any kind of thoughts of not, you know, relapsing out of my head. There should be no problem with our insurance and everything this time. And when I'm ready to come in and tell them that's always ready. And I promise them I would come. No more cancellations. Only be there before 11 o'clock. Oh. We are at the corner of Maine and First Street when the train comes. We need to go back home once again without getting done the counter. <laughs> I tried once again to get me to the site and the rehab center. But they said, even though they have the facts to say that they do treat the mental health party also, they told me and Mary they don't have that. The doctor on call there because it's not a hospital. Now, if I wore my hair straightened, they have on the dress and heels and a nice new coat, maybe I'll be alright. But well, why would I need them? This class shouldn't miss for this class. And that's the nicest way I can put it. That's the only way I'm gonna put it because that's the way it is. I like not doing that work no more. I'm fine with that. I'm tired. I would've been in the first one. and I would've been happy if it didn't turn out that way. I like happy endings. <laughs> I believe in fairy tales.
2: Okay, so, Sorry for the sound. I hope that you are able to make it out. Uh, But I think it's getting a little bit better. So for um, Camille, buprenorphine is is not designed for her, as you can see. The institutional barriers that she ran up against, really we could see as a form of structural violence. Because she kept going into withdrawal, um, not being able to get a doctor who would see her long term and keep her prescriptions going. In fact, I wondered as um, a video group member, not necessarily her doctor, but I wondered in trying to support her getting treatment whether I was doing more harm than good, whether she would have been better off not looking for buprenorphine treatment. But then the question comes up, what happens when someone does get access to treatment? Um, what, What kinds of problems does that solve and what doesn't it solve? So, I'm now going to play some footage of Ruben, who uh, is actually with us. He was, si- he was sitting right there a moment ago. He's at the side. Oh, you changed. Okay, there you go. Um, so, Ruben, correct me if I'm wrong, but he's a Neo-Rican. He grew up here in the New York City area in a household dominated by drugs, as you'll hear in a moment. The oldest of 12 siblings, um, he left home as a teenager determined to work for a living and stay off drugs. But he gets introduced to heroin on the job, and he'll explain that in the footage. He does manage to get buprenorphine treatment through the first clinic um, that offers it, and along the way discovers art through an art therapy group. That's a part of his treatment plan. So he takes up art in such an intensive way, in fact, that he goes on to get recognized as part of the outsider art movement in the city. Um, I've already said too much, so let me let me just play some footage here. Oops, what happened to the video? (laughs)
0: It's there, I think. I'm hiding it. it. Yeah. Okay. There we go. All
4: uh-huh. right.
2: We're having some strange back noise that wasn't there before. Let's just get rid of these. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't just stop. Yeah, I know. Since we have Ruben here, <laughs> all else fails Ruben, <laughs> you get to come up and speak.
4: Yeah, how are you doing, Lori? Okay, uh, I was here like a, a month ago, and I put in a, a, a prescription for buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. A lot of pharmacies don't like carrying buprenorphine. Okay, they, they, I have a lot of setbacks. I mean, one day I went to 10 different pharmacies, and they all said they don't have it and you had told me I had to wait a month. A few of them said they don't order it. Uh, over. Okay. Uh, 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 oh, okay. that's bad. Can I go in there and have it ordered? How
2: long do you have before you start getting symptoms of withdrawal and what it, what it looks like?
4: Well, if I don't have it by the next day, I'm sick.
2: What does sick look like?
4: Withdrawing, it's like withdrawing heroin. Very, very bad. And, uh... What kind of symptoms do you get? The symptoms I get is um, uh, the chills, uh, bad pains in my stomach, and sometimes I would scratch the wall if I it. And there are times, at that time when I was sick, I actually felt like going to the Bronx and getting a, a, a bag of heroin. It a just so, because they did not order my prescription, or they refused it. Okay. Is that your small box? Yes. Yeah. Mm. 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 Wow. Can you tell
5: us what they are? They are dragging me, huh? Where are they? You never know, or is it high blood pressure? What was Oh, yeah, uh, so, in, in, in? Oh, i the So, what What else is there? Actose,
4: which, uh-huh. which is for diabetes. uh dog, which is for diabetes. to which is sleep. is from addiction. addiction. And... Is there anything else no, let take. For, um, you want to take? He never proved that forming actors, you the right? um, mm-hmm. my vision, that falling my. Oh, if I which is the injection, mm-hmm. which I didn't take this morning, I don't think I would. My father was, you know, one day I, I stopped, to like, I took a peek my father's bedroom and I saw Felix, tiny little arm, you shouldn't know. My mother, she was an aeronautic. When she used to send me to the store and pay the numbers for her and get her beer, she always said, keep, keep the change. And the change was always <coughs> 12 dollars And the back is almost $10. Dollars. But she never, ever, ever questioned me about how you doing, Harry. How you doing, anything. And that's it. so she also kept it just. I guess she was a denial that her son wasn't there. Let me show you the room. Okay. This is where I live. This I did myself. These are Russian soldiers. And this is a Chinese guy on horse. This is my room. Yeah. Why is it? Everything is it. My mother, my father. She would hit me with a bat, she would hit me with a broke stick, she would hit me with whatever she could get her hands on. My father would hit me with a belt. She always called me a low knife. she always called me a... You know, why not like a father, you're no good, you piece of shit. Uh, (coughs) Whenever I used to run track, she would see me by the windows by yelling, Make it, you know, run, 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 run. And if I lose, I say I come in third place, she starts cursing. I go, you fucking idiot, you could have came first. I'm smiling because that's how I just, that was my life. Everything was negative, nothing positive. Art oh, didn't even phase anything. I never thought of it. Until so I came to this program, and when I got into the art therapy, and then when I really looked at the art, I see something in me that happened 30, 40 years ago and was in the Subconsciously, so I'll do something that I've not realized at the moment. I'm still working on But I actually put in bricks on everything. Everything bricks. Buildings with bricks. Everything was bricks. And it came down to, when I was a kid, I was sleigh riding down a hill, and I was doing a project, and I went straight into the wall, and it was a big brick wall. And I checked my tooth, and, and I guess I was proud kind of my like husband. But I didn't realize it until, what, 40 years later, 50 years later, when I was drawing everything brick, 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 bricks. And she goes really, really big. My wife is drawing bricks. And that was it. Does that make sense? So since then I kept doing everything with art. I kept improving. It came to the point that my art made it to the art galleries. I made it Oasis, the, one of the best way um, to be an artist in New York State. I'm going to my sister's house to see my friend is there. Yeah, he goes that way. Stay to the right. Uh, if he's not dead, then I'm dead. He came not up here for nothing. But like I said, I've seen him before. Yes, I don't know if he's straight, but if he's not, then if he's smoking that crack, he won't get out of the house. Even though he told me this morning that he'll be in my sister's house at, you know, within half an hour. I was early this morning. When I just called him a him, he picked up the phone. He was still on do you remember where your family is? very unreliable. Okay, especially Lorraine. Okay, I'm trying to reach out this time. You know, I'm trying to fucking reach out. You know, she was a fucking crack addict bitch before, but she forgets where she comes from. You know, I come over to fucking Brooklyn right? and she is actually a kind of I'm a gay all Oh, she doesn't feel like three more What's up, brother? <coughs> <What's up? coughs> right. right, right, right. So, what's yeah. oh, man, what uh, She's. you know she's sick? Yeah, but that's no excuse. But I've been emailing her all week, all week. And all she had to do was say, woman, I don't feel good, I'll come this weekend. Nothing. Nothing. She don't have to Yeah, but then she emails me she, you know, two fucking mornings. Yeah. Five? yeah. To say, okay, um, I'll let you know in the morning if you're going to come here or If if I to come here or not. Fuck her. You know, I didn't come to see her anyway. you to her. You have to oh. give oh. her a minute to see if you're going to walk. Walk. Now. Don't make you call, eh?
2: Uh, okay,
4: you going to and she's got the thing going on the money also. You know, a lot of stress. I
5: don't know happy people are There's happy
4: people. Money, I don't think I'm like to yeah, I'm not saying you know that, right? Well, ain't. Well, you're going to need
6: and have
4: You don't want, you want to sit down to me. I started going, I went to art therapy, right? right. Mm-hmm. The program, I went to prolific art therapy. And that's when I started to realize that so I can draw. I meditate that before. And then I started, I started to wander in the galleries. Um, Oasis, I went up one of the best in the state. Tonight. I joined up uh, Fresh Arts, another program which I, I do sell selling it's another art gallery. And my son had to buy. I go to his art program. You got my artist? I don't know, I've been doing it for 30 years, Jim. Is that true? No, no,
6: about 10 years. No, my mom went on. I did, um, Susie's daughter's birthday cake and, um, Shut the I rocked it. I
4: baked the cake. Yeah, you were very skinny, I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember
6: That's because I wasn't on that. insulin.
4: I'm on insulin now. Yeah. We had insulin sort one of Which one? At the paella? No. Paella? They got me on that too, but I got, five. they gave me pañera. But so you, you, you don't take the shot, you're going to become the largest too. I you take you the shot, shot now. I take four. I take two different needles Go more, and you I take one in the morning one at night. Oh, okay. Five milligrams of pañera in the morning, five milligrams at night, plus mixed formans. At least I've got one in good. You have the largest too. I have two.
6: Yeah, I got that one. Yeah, wait, that's tense. i uh, well, we in the pumpkin, so next week. You decide
4: no. you yeah, have the automatic check. That's what I should get.
6: Okay. Yeah. Social Security? Yeah. 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 I just got, just went of there Friday
4: decided to sign papers. They can't yeah. put me So you can't accept I'm just saving officially I can only stand on my legs for so long. So here we are, bouncing. I don't know they paid for that. they paid for the pump? That's my chicken. Yeah, they're paid for the pump. Don't give it a to sleep. What's Yeah, no, really Hey, another,
5: uh, oh. hey, <laughs> hey no, <I'm> <laughs> Bye. Hey, hi. Bye. Hi.
6: Bye.
3: This is good.
6: We're going to take the down mean you can't take outside whatever She's not feeling well. so, so, have you ever done
4: flexibility? i done flexibility. for what? Uh, for uh, uh, depression, and the illness. Hey. <coughs> you think depression keeps you from working? At the
2: beginning. Uh-huh.
4: Well, I
3: think I just look now.
4: Hmm. What do you think about <coughs> <I don't> that? <know. coughs> I, I think I'm working again. I want to get my driver's license again. I want <just> to <coughs> start riding trunks or something. Uh-huh. I can't stay disabled for the rest of my life. I, I think I'm still functioning. What bothers <coughs> you about staying on disability? I just don't care. Yeah. Like I, still mm-hmm. I feel like I can still function. I feel like I really, at the beginning I thought I really needed it. But after a while I realized, you know, if I get my driving license back, I can get jobs easy. Mm-hmm. Driving trucks, buses, uh, beautiful. You know, I think I've to, to work another 30 years. What do you think about driving? I see uh, everything. Ah, life is short. Okay, please shut it Mm off.
2: So um, again, thank you for your patience with the sound. I hope you were able to make out some of it. Uh, what we missed in the opening scene was uh, Ruben in the studio talking about how the studio, his colleagues in the studio were more like family, treated him more like family than his own family did. So we can come back in this vignette to something that Camille also, I think, demonstrated, this intergenerational transmission of trauma and also disability, at least the idea of disability, (coughs) mediated by substances along the way, at every step of the way, both legal and illegal substances. Uh, And what we kind of glossed over at the end here that we want to fill out is in that year, in between Rob's death and the scene that you saw, Ruben went through a a year of homelessness when when the fire marshal shut down his housing, uh, which is quite common, actually. The city is full of illegal housing um, for people who can't get into the, the low income uh, housing market. Um, and basically these landlords take a cut of social security checks and that's a huge industry. So Ruben ended up homeless, um, went through horrific experiences and managed to stay on buprenorphine the whole time. So what I think we see though is that his problems certainly don't go away with buprenorphine treatment And, um, you know, medication is is not enough in this situation. But on the other hand, he probably wouldn't be an artist to this day without it. He's lonely, understandable, and angry given his situation with his family. Uh, And the stigma of medication isolates him, even though in other ways the medication allows him to be with others, um, especially in the art studio. for Reuben, the irony is that he feels the medication traps him, but it also gives him a lifeline in the form of a career in art. And so I'm going to turn to the last vignette, uh, and this is a vignette of Ed, who's been on methadone for two years at the time that we start filming with him. It's what allows him to get some stable housing. And also to get back in touch with his three children who live in Puerto Rico. He hasn't had contact with them in five years, and they've been told that he's dead. So, like, and, and actually, let me go straight to the vignette, and we'll talk a little bit about Ed after that.
6: Well, I remember my father taking us to the west side of the for the first time. I was so impressed with, um, with the show that you see sitting down looking up. I remember that it being so impressive. And it says, I love the astronomy so much. Yeah. You know? makes, makes me like it even more. Yeah. You know? Oh, my father, my father he always um, took the time off to talk to me about the universe. I think he was the one who got me interested in astronomy. Although I've always liked it myself, but he always took the time off to... See all the wonders of the stars and, and, and the different shapes and sizes. Uh, and I remember going to the movies so a lot. I remember seeing Star Wars with my parents, which, which by the way happens to be my favorite movie Star Wars. Um, it was very close. It was very close. I had one boy and two girls. He's 17. So he's 15, and the little one is five. Last time I spoke to them? Wow, uh, that was five years ago. Five years ago. Um, well, it was kind of sad because I was coming back to New York, you know? I was coming back. It was sad. I had to say goodbye. Come back home. This is my home. New York City is my home. This is um, the moment that we wait for. But I've always loved nature, so I'm a city boy and an nature boy. great, 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 great. I think it's not so long this time it's going to be more at peace.
2: Reuben. Ed's recovery is about breaking a cycle of intergenerational trauma and addiction. And um, actually, in Ed's mind, really full recovery means becoming drug-free. All along the way, it wasn't clear to me which was more important to Ed's ability to reunite with his children, whether it was the methadone treatment itself or whether it was the therapy groups that went along with it. What you didn't see was that the therapy group took up a collection to help him get there. So that says a lot about the the network that he had, the support he had there. Um, now, unfortunately, about two months after Ed actually weaned off of methadone, he was found in his room dead of overdose. So that sent a strong signal to me about the value of harm reduction. And again, I'm not sure whether it was Graduating from the program, not having the medication, or graduating and not having the therapy group that was more important. Um, so, and in fact, Frankie Ed's brother is here with us, and um, and you know we're going to have a discussion um, in a few minutes. But I invite you to say anything that you might want to add to the conversation about that, because um, I know Frankie was very present throughout Ed's recovery. So now I want to put some questions back to you as a narrative medicine group. Um, Given that this is a work in progress, I'm really hoping for feedback and I I know that I'll get it. Um, One question is about if and how this resonates with your work, uh, working with narrative within this larger structure of pharmaceuticalized, um, medication-oriented care. And then another, I alluded to harm reduction. I think this is a, a concept that's really hard to get across still. It's starting to gain traction now that white middle class people are dying of opioid overdose. You know, Now we're seeing harm reduction coming out of the mouths of federal legislators and the president. Um, but it's a hard concept to get across unless you've been involved in working in it. Um, and I think there's even a subtle difference between treatment for chronic disease, the way that buprenorphine has been marketed, and methadone as well, um, and harm reduction, in that harm reduction doesn't really demand treatment adherence. You know, It's kind of a wider perspective on the greater good. And I'm wondering how we might, with this footage or other, help, other footage, help to um, highlight the concept of harm reduction. And then another question is about care, what the care in health care consists of. Really what I, I'd love to do with this footage and and others is to help widen the scope of what we think about care and working against the structural violence that you got a taste of in this and probably have experienced in your work, um, to work towards a more holistic approach and a focus on social connection, which is kind of the underlying theme of, of these vignettes. So that leads me to one last question about using narrative to foster solidarity with patients. I bet that you all have experience with that. That's something that intrigued me about the video group and the way that it is run, it's democratic structure. But I'm wondering if you also could add to the ways that narrative makes that possible. Um, So with that, I'll kind of open the floor for your comments.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruben and Frankie, for being here. I wonder if we uh, could open with uh, asking Frankie if you wanted to say a few words. I know that Lena mentioned you may want to say something.
2: Not to put you on the spot. Say as much or as little as you want.
0: Uh, no, but, uh,
5: thank you, um, uh, Dr. Hansen and everyone. Uh, yes, I, as you all saw the footage of uh, my brother, Ed, so he uh, was doing, you know, attending groups and... Uh, he be hospital getting his treatment and his uh, medication and everything that goes with it and uh, so and the and, 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 uh, meantime his desire was to uh, make a long story short his desire was to um, reunite once again with his family which Dr. Hansen and company made, made, made possible and which he was nervous about it but everything, thank God, turned out alright so he saw his, his family. He came back to New York, uh, where, 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 where we're from. Where, where he where, where, this is uh, his as he stated, this city. This is where he's born in, in, in Shanghai. And uh, so, and he was down with this recovery. And uh, but uh, we we were together. I was with him throughout through, through it all. And uh, And I was with him all the way, and uh, we we lived together in a family shelter. But then uh, we—he decided he took it upon himself. We just wanted to go our independent ways, and we agreed to that. And okay, fine. uh, So uh, he was staying at a men's shelter uh, right by Bellevue Hospital, and in the meantime, and uh, and I was on my own. And uh, we got to get together and see each other, hang out every now and then. Uh, but, uh, um, little, little did I know that uh, I just noticed a uh, slight change in, in weight or whatever and I asked him if he was okay, but he just uh, said everything's just fine and uh, I told him you, you, can, you can talk to me openly and I'm there for you, but, uh, but, uh, fortunately, the, uh, the day came when, uh, or the night came when he passed away and, uh, but uh, things happen, you know, and uh, it's been tough. Uh, this, just this past September, and uh, six months later. And uh, but uh, but okay, the well, that goes on. But uh, but but definitely, uh, uh, I like to give thanks uh, to Dr. Hansen, who's uh, definitely des- deserving uh, to be acknowledged, and uh, such as in uh, the whole group as well, like Cisco, Lena. And uh, Beverly here as well. Yeah. My wonderful companion, and uh, Ruben and uh, Some um, I just met about uh, well, uh, six months ago at, the mem- at the at the memorial. But uh, uh, everyone, you know, on, on, I'm sure, on, on, on Eddie's behalf, you know, you know, uh, I, I'm just grateful and uh, I see how how you take it upon yourself to like uh, just uh, uh, go into, uh, as Ruben and and uh, Blue, as you, uh, not only do you have knowledge, but you can interact and and get a deeper uh, understanding of what's going on in your lives.
2: And for that, I thank you, um, um, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks perfect, for for sharing that and for coming. You know, it can't be easy to watch these images of Ed, um, and you know, we lost contact with him too. And I think that's kind of the point. One thing that I've seen about the treatment system here, addiction treatment system, is that so-called aftercare has disappeared. And there, we're under a lot of pressure at Bellevue Hospital to discharge people quickly. So these structural influences are coming in. And um, again, it's another form of structural violence. I see Lena nodding that we have to discharge people quickly into nothing, you know, to no community-based network. So, because of insurance, he no longer was able to come to therapy group, um, and that's when we all lost touch. So, um, and I, I also want to thank you, as an audience, for your patience with the sound. We tested this out multiple times earlier, and this is this is what happens <laughs> when you venture into audiovisual. But thank you for bearing with us.
0: And Frank, I just want you to know that you're being here and you're sharing your story and your brother having the courage to be filmed uh, and to be able to share this with us helps us learn how to take care of patients better. So I want you to know that you're having a role in educating uh, future healthcare providers and current healthcare providers. So thank you. That's so well put. Um, So let's open this up to the audience. Uh, Helena posed many questions for us.
4: Dr. Hansen, um, it's obvious that the three people, Neil, Ruben, and Ed, connected with you. Uh, we see the end product. I'm interested in the process by which you got them to trust you.
2: So I, I can attempt to answer that, and I also want to invite video group members who knew all three to chime in too, because I think. That's another thing that was powerful about being in a group, that um, as every person in the group went out of their comfort level to share what they were thinking and feeling and their ideas for video production, um, I think it created an atmosphere where people could take some risks in doing that. I know, so Frankie, you can probably verify that Ed was not someone who was used to being in front of the camera. And he resisted it for a really long time.
4: Right.
2: And I'm not, I'm trying to remember what point he started to be willing to be filmed. I think that the, this journey of reconnecting with his kids kind of took over. Um, and somehow he just allowed us to do it. Do, do you have any yeah, comments?
7: Lena? Yeah? I would, I would like to say that um, the for, for Camille, for Ruben, and for Ed, I think what happened was the group became a safe place. Um, it was total acceptance. There was no judgment. And slowly, I think, Reuben and all, you know, Ed felt like they could be themselves. And it wasn't easy. It took a long time. Um, you know, because when individuals come into treatment, they're very wounded, and um, I had the fortune, I'm still at Bellevue, but when I first started Bellevue, I've been there for 18 years. When I first started, uh, the length of stay was a lot longer. So I got to know Ruben in a very different way because I knew him for a long time. I got to know Ed, I knew Camille. And now, um, as Helena said, there's a focus on, let's get them in, let's get them out. And um, there is a reality that treatment should be a stepping stone to life. But yet, what do you do with those individuals who are so wounded and who don't know how to be in the world um, that need longer time? Um, So that's a question that I have. Um, But all, all of those three individuals, especially Ed, because Ed was very shy, I think slowly got to feel accepted and through that acceptance I think it expanded out to you and to Mary and I think you felt that we saw him who he was thank you uh, what
2: a great question and I want to mention Mary we saw in the backdrop she was a really important um, person and she was a volunteer who worked in the, in the video group and unfortunately she died too in the course of this project, so one answer to the question about trust is time, because really we're seeing here about three years of time less. Um, but yeah, we did lose quite a number of people along the way making this. Ruben, did you want to say something about trust? It turns out Ruben is kind of a natural, <laughs> he takes to the camera really well. Um, but do you want to say something about trust and also what motivated you to go in front of a camera? <laughs> uh, my brother also died a week after we killed him he got, got beat up and we died and
4: um, I'm still struggling um, I'm trying to get off this deep enough in the because I'm tired of it I'm tired of it okay it's like um, you know you go to the pharmacy and they look at you like you know, you, I'm one of them because I know what people do. With, you know, a lot of them abuse it and they sell it on the street, okay? Or they'll tell it back that they lost it or whatever. So whenever, like, somebody like me who will, you know, get my medication, they look at you like, you know, you're one of them, or and they make a mistake like, We don't have it. We don't have your prescription. We don't have it. I walked out. they stopped calling me back. Oh, we found it. It's stupid, stupid. Anyway, the best medication I ever had was uh, going to Tbilisi, Georgia. That's another country uh, near Russia. Um, That's the best medication I ever had. I didn't want to come back, but people were so friendly. Uh, It's nothing I can do. That's enough. So your prescription
5: is to leave the United States. <laughs> <laughs> your prescription is to leave the United States. Traveling. you're traveling. you dead. Questions? Uh, I'm interested in the term social technology. Uh, it seems so, which has a misuse so institutionalizing it. For example, you uh, know, study movement uh, So we talked about the almshouse in San Francisco was the last one and it was such a beautiful model of the the healthy, the healing environment moving to the dance of the patient. It took like two years to heal a woman and this woman went on, but um, the idea of social technology, just comment on that in terms of what's good the get it done. Thank you. Uh, That's
2: another great question. Um, And I do think that there are advantages and disadvantages. So coming out of, so there's this theoretical base in Michelle Foucault about technologies of social control and government. Um, Maybe that's one source of the term for me. But I started using that term in clinical circles because there's this idea that molecular technologies are these technologies and they really do something. On the other hand, therapy groups, social connection, those things are soft because they don't necessarily do much. And so I started using the term social technology just to highlight, you no, know, actually these are tools and techniques that have concrete outcomes. You know, I, That's one thing that I hope comes across in the vignettes here um, and in other stories that I've been a part of telling. Uh, but that's really the motivation for it, and yeah. And, but you're pointing out one of the downsides, which is that maybe I'm feeding into this desire for um, these kind of concrete, mechanical devices in a way. Um, when that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about. Uh, but I hear in other comments here a more organic process. That's one reason why time is so important in recovery. And trust develops over time. Trust in oneself develops over all sorts of things develop. It's an organic thing, which is why um, you know the therapy groups are not interchangeable. Um, we can't have a treatment structure where people move in and out over a two- or three-day period in different groups and having have impact on that. But unfortunately, that's the way our bureaucratized healthcare system—it's um, it's efficient that our our healthcare system buys into. So, uh, did, do you have any other comments?
4: Members, about, about that.
0: You no know? questions. I
4: can let questions about that? <laughs> oh, I heard someone raised their hand.
8: Can I just? Why I come? Hello. My name is Russell. Blessings and thoughts for our because that was very hard to see. Um, with Rebecca's story, and then particularly with Ed, for feedback and resonation, um, the song El Dia de Mi Suerte, uh, with Hector Lavoe, couldn't come out of my head when I was watching Ed. And this idea, that for those familiar with the lyrics, it begins with soon enough, my lucky day will come, I know before my death. For sure, my luck well, will change, um, and uh, particularly the last two cases of, of New rico and, and Puerto Rico and this idea that self-sufficiency was something that he spoke about dearly as perhaps a goal of health. Um, I'm wondering about the greater narrative, particularly in the case of the overwhelming dependency kind of and drug problems of the Puerto Rican community following um, following a um, whole post-colonial state, the continuing colonial state of Puerto Rico, how that could be tied in, perhaps, in the discussion. Because I think it's impossible to discuss within all of Latin America's uh, drug problem, this whole notion of post-colonial reality, of colonial very deep reality in Puerto Rico. Um, and it, it was something that just resonated very deeply with me, and that I don't think we discuss enough in, America, in our policy in our policy. the reality of how we're going to overwhelmingly try to address this um, because of this narrative that you say of suburbia and self-determination and providing opportunity and freedom and liberty and why not
2: what a lovely comment thank you Um, and I I want to get back to Rivera Colon's comment about uh, the drug war the origins of the drug war because it really highlights, like Puerto Rico, it turns out, is the second largest portal from Latin America into the United States for narcotics after the Mexican border. And so there are real structural reasons why. And, yeah, we get a lot. Pardon?
8: I'm Hondureño, it's Central America, too, now.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there, there are very concrete reasons why heroin, cocaine, such an issue there. Um, so all these things are intricately bound up with the hierarchies of state, of race, nationhood, ethnicity. Um, so I, I think you put it really beautifully that that's, this narrative of independence can take many different forms and come from different places. It's understandable that Puerto Rico, a territory of the U.S. with this very liminal status, um, that independence would be you know, a recurring theme and how that links up with treatment discourses and people's struggles with narcotics, that's, that's really a fascinating question. Um, but, this, but you're right that it's this larger discourse that's very linked in with our national ideals. Um, trying to avoid using the word neoliberal, but that's, <laughs> you know, that's a, a word that has come up very, very often recently. And so there's, it's impossible to divorce what goes on in addiction treatment and clinics from this larger dynamic of what we're holding up as the ideal way of life. And so in many ways, I think that successful recovery in the way that the people that I'm working with are finding it flies in the face of the larger cultural thread. Um, They're learning ways to work around that the the premium put on a certain vision for independence, right, Um, and freedom, a certain kind of freedom. But that very much links to the idea idea that I'm working through with this piece, which is called Managing the Fix, that, you know, there's this give and take um, and that there's a certain kind of interdependence with substances that many people um, find is really the best way that they can live and not to overlook that and there, there's a parallel with the social inter- interdependence too and that's what I don't want to lose sight of that all these things come together they're all intertwined and entangled and then there's larger political discourse but there's a, certain, there's a kind of counterculturalism I think about addiction recovery um, when it works like that when social ties are bound up in the recovery itself and I wonder if for those who are in recovery in the video group, any comments on that? Steve? I see you know. <laughs> I don't know, we're almost at the end of our time. Oh <laughs>
8: okay, uh, okay, I'll make it brief. Um what I what I what I'm thinking about the I'm thinking about change that needs to be made. You know, seeing seeing the vignettes, um I've seen them a few times and hearing you speak, I just think, when are things going to change? Like, when are we going to be more valuable than a bottle of Xanax? Or, you know, all these medications, you know? When, is, when, is, when, am, when are we going to be more valuable than Kim Kardashian in the media? You know, I, I just see so much pain for people wanting to try, showing up at the door, and people throwing the doors because they're less valued. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really well
2: I think Susan had a comment too, but I, I wanted to um, add to this thought about, mm-hmm. about independence, independence. So... Drug addiction is kind of the ideal type of dependence, fully dependent. And so the opposite is supposed to be complete independence. And maybe the point is to get rid of that bipolarity, you know, to think about how we can become interdependent in a much more fruitful and life-giving way. And that's what I I think takes place in in recovery in, you know, the full way that I see it happening. Susan, did you want to comment? No, just that um, I was in uh, that group for a year
7: and eight months and um, in the chemical dependency on patient, and I didn't want to leave. I was very dependent, as you say just now, on being there as much as I could be there, and when I had to go, I would kick it and scream it all the way, don't let me go, don't let me go. Um, But but I, I did go, and I did manage to, you know, Stay me. on my feet. And y'all wouldn't let me go. Well, you
2: didn't, didn't really
7: think need. I needed it. What? <laughs> so Susan is now a
2: volunteer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Two yeah. years. Yeah. So let's, let's conclude with a comment from Edgar.
1: The, uh, yeah. yes. Thank you very much. Um, I think the comments here really did. I mean, I think, I don't think narrative medicine can tell you a lot, to be honest. Um, I think the the, the video uh, is totally embedded in to kinship narratives. Mm-hmm. And it's about groups, and that's beautiful. When are we going to be more, you know, important in this sense, mm-hmm. right? I think that gets, nails it perfectly. And I, and I would just say, like, to me at least, uh, this came out of that group. Mm-hmm. It's really groups that sustain us. And I think for me, thinking about ethnography, as an anthropologist, is so many times we individualize when we should be really both talking about groups, and I think visually that's the economy that you're you're constantly playing not playing with but documenting. You know, so I think that from a narrative standpoint, you know, it's really this constant we. And I'll just end by saying that in December, I had a we had a group of 25 to 30 Latino gay bisexual men who were all activists to come together in New York City. I co facilitated with Georgia Yala and my sister Lily Rivera. And these were all politicized, activists, some HIV positive, some 60 years old, some 20 years old. And all we did for two days was ask this question. We had no agenda other than this How do we heal? How do we heal? There was no, problem. it was just that. right? And I think that that documentary you're doing really asked about it. And if, if the strength is in the group,
0: but in the foreground, it's already there. Thank you, Edgar. And uh, you know, earlier you apologized for the sound. Uh, Maybe there are some technical issues, but the stories came through loud and clear, regardless of any sound, technical issues. And I just wanna thank you for the work that you do. I wanna thank Ruben, Frankie for being here, and all the people involved with the film and the folks who are working in the center. Uh, you've really enriched us tonight, and uh, thank you Thanks very much. for having us.